Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, my name is Tim Durrant. I'm Programme Director here, and I'm really delighted to be hosting this event discussing special advisors. The fact that we've got so many people here shows that it's always worth talking about, and I hope you're not just here for the air conditioning. <laughs> SPADs um, play a crucial role in government. Uh, they support and advise ministers. They represent ministers' views to journalists and to civil servants, and they maintain relationships with party colleagues on the behalf of ministers. But it's a really difficult job. Uh, there's very little in the way of support, often, from either the civil service or their political party, and it can be very difficult to make headway. So while there will always be those who want to malign and criticise special advisers, we want to ask, how can they be good at their job? What are the skills they need, and how can you prepare to be a SPAD? So to discuss all this and more, I've got a fantastic, very experienced panel with me. So starting on my left, uh, Dr Jennifer Lees Marshmont, who is an Associate Professor at the University of Auckland, and her research focuses on the political advisor role in the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Sonia Khan, Associate Director at Cicero, and she was a former special, well, she was a special advisor to both Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid at the Treasury, and also has experience as a civil servant. Baroness Sally Morgan, who was Director of Government Relations for Tony Blair until 2005, then became Minister for Women and Equalities, Chair of Ofsted, and is now the Master of Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge. And Liz Lloyd, who has over a decade of experience as a Special Advisor in the Scottish Government, including nine years as Chief of Staff and Strategy Advisor to Nicola Sturgeon. So I will kick off with some opening questions for the panel. We'll then have a bit of a discussion and we'll open to audience questions. Um, we are live tweeting from our IFG events account using hashtag IFG SPADS. So please do follow and tweet along if you'd like. And for those online, uh, please do send your questions in via Slido. If you feel able to, add your name and organisation. Uh, and those watching online, you can vote for the questions that you would like to see asked. So with that, I will kick off. Sally, if you could start perhaps, what does success look like for a special advisor and what sort of skills do you need? I mean, I think success is to understand that you're there with a specific role that's complementary to the civil service and it works like everything else. I mean, I, I was saying when we were just having a sandwich before we started, um, it's possible to define and do lots of papers on what is the role of a SPAD and draw nice diagrams. In the end, from my point of view, it always worked if the relationships were good and that's the relationships between the politicians and the SPADs and the relationships between the civil service and the SPADs and the relationships with SPADs and civil servants. And in a sense, it's, when, it, when it works well, it, it, it's two plus two equals five rather than, rather than a negative. And um, I think you're there, you're there to try and explain the sort of political agenda of your respective minister. In my case, it was the prime minister to the broader civil service. You're there sometimes to also explain that, particularly to relatively inexperienced um, members of both the civil service and indeed of your political party sometimes in the sense that you're also explaining at times in my experience to your political party and perhaps to your MPs but not everything is possible so you are constantly in a sort of two-way conversation and you're a go-between um, so in terms of skills I would say um, above all it's the ability to work as a team it's the ability to be able to take decisions um, so long as you know it, it works best if there is clarity about what a government is trying to do if there's clarity and there's a sort of political program that is clear you know you know the broad direction of travel and therefore you can interpret things you can say yes or no to things because you know broadly they're going to fit in at times it's also being really clear to explain to the minister or in my case the prime minister 
that that was not going to be possible mm -hmm. because either there wasn't going to be buy-in from um, the, the political party or there wasn't, it, the civil service had absolutely valid concerns and issues. Um, I mean, I think number 10 is rather different. So in a sense, it, it was very much, we felt very much we were part of a team with, with complementary roles and spent a lot of time working together um, in, you know, in meetings where we were all present. Uh, occasionally there were specific, well not occasionally, there were separate political meetings, um, which obviously civil service colleagues weren't part of. But most of the time um, we were in the, you know, if there was a Monday morning meeting, we were all there together. So let's talk about number 10 and the PM yeah. first ministers in a little bit. But on that point about kind of perhaps slightly more difficult conversations, you know, saying to the prime minister, mm. actually, no, this isn't going to work. Mm. How do you go about that? What, how do you do? How do you I mean, that? I was fortunate. I'd worked, for, I'd worked two years for, for Tony Blair before I went in. So I think, I think there is a real advantage if you've had a working relationship with somebody before they have taken the role that they've got, then gone into. Because in a sense, you're, you're used to having conversations where you're not... Of course, you've got high regard for somebody because they are in a they're in a senior role, but you you're not nervous about about having that conversation because, in a sense, certainly my experience, I'd had two years where we had been campaigning to get into power and yeah. taking difficult decisions and having to navigate our way through um, where to land things with with the Labour Party. Um, so. Uh, I think as long as I think I think in the end it does come down to trust. If you deliver and you're known to deliver, and of course you've got to, of course you broadly are absolutely, well more than broadly, you, you know, I believed in what we were trying to do, but that meant when I did say, this is not going to work, or that's just a step too far, or we just haven't got the, the support there or there, I think it was easier for me to be listened to, because broadly speaking, he knew that I was saying that for a very good reason, but I do think in the end that comes from personal relationships and trust. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. Sonia, if I could turn to you, so you were a special advisor in more recent governments. Yeah. How do you recognise what Sally's describing and how do you think things have changed uh, in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say that um, there's been a really big move away from having a specialism and more of the special advisors now are generalists. And I think a big sort of reason that that exists is that some really successful campaigns, particularly sort of the Vote Leave campaign, put together teams that were based on loyalty and trust. And so... That is the principal reason people are there, and they learn the communication skills, they learn the policy skills, they learn the parliamentary engagement and the business engagement. And I think that's very different to how it's been in previous years, and possibly to Sally's time, because there was a far greater sort of reliance on experts in the private sector or otherwise, whereas we just don't see that now. But it also means that it's much harder to understand how people have gotten their role, why they do the role that they do, because we can't see their personal relationships with the PM or otherwise. So it makes it much, much harder to understand how they work. So I would say that there's probably less transparency now than there has been in previous years. I think the other big thing, and this is a relatively sort of recent change, is the fact that um, special advisors have become celebrities now. And I do think that has sort of an impact in how people operate in their day-to-day -day life. It means that there's a lot more scrutiny in who they are and what they do. More people know their name. Um, there's also social media. So, you know, you can share things quite easily. So it means that people sort of fall into two camps, I'd say. There's one, a group who operate with a high degree of caution and anxiety, and therefore they um, don't meet businesses. They don't meet kind of their stakeholders. They uh, don't engage a policy with a broad group of stakeholders so I know with the last budget actually it was pretty tightly kept for both leak reasons but also just that people feel a lot more comfortable 
operating in an environment with less transparency. But then you also get kind of another group who realise that actually it's a really great opportunity to create brand whoever you are. Um, and so as a result, you need some really quick policy wins and you need some delivery wins and they need to be attributed to you because when the book comes out of your boss's time in office, mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you are credible, that you were seen as someone who delivers. So that means that long-term policy goals kind of get put on the back burner because people want like quick, sharp wins. Um, so it means that some of that like long-term funding, whether it comes to capital funding or you know long-term projects or things that we, won't, we know won't deliver now, just don't happen. I think that's really interesting in that point about like the kind of yeah the celebrity aspect oh. of spads. We were talking earlier about you know people writing novels yeah. or having Channel Four documentaries about them. Yeah. Going on straight from dancing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, Jennifer, if I can ask you next. So you've looked at political advisors across uh, different Westminster systems. What do you think are the main skills that special advisors, as we call them in the UK, need, and um, and are they supported to develop those skills? Um, they're definitely not really supported to develop those skills, first of all, and um, so they have to learn them on the job, which creates all sorts of problems. But there's a range of skills that they need. These are very pressured skills. So the first most important one is political reasoning or judgment. They are there specifically, distinctively from civil servants to apply political lens to things. How are these things going to play? How are they going to serve our base? How are they going to serve the communities that we are seeking to represent you know, on an MP's office level? So that's the first thing. The second thing is people skills. This is, we were discussing earlier um, before we started that this is very much a people business. And so they need to develop and have very positive relationships with a wide range of people within their offices, within, uh, across teams within their office, across other offices, with civil servants, with outside lobbyists, with public um, sector workers, the whole range. So they really need very, very good people skills to build up good relationships, persuade people, placate people, listen to people, respond to people, and so on. So that's a huge part of their job. It's very people-focused. Um, third thing is advisory aptitude. So we talked about advising, being able to speak truth to power. That is really important. That is their job, as well as just being open to listening to different ideas, putting forward new ideas, adapting to change, because it's a very quick, fast-paced business, which doesn't stay still. So ability to learn as well is really important. And then last but not least is a fit with the politician and the political office. So each politician is different, so each office is different. And also each team will have different requirements and they need to be able to fit with that. That may be seen in a simplistic sense as being partisan, but it actually doesn't have to be and shouldn't have to be um, because really what's important is that they're committed, professional, trustworthy, loyal, working for the person they're supposed to be working for. And that may or may not come from, from partisanship. So that last point is interesting. So from your research, you know, are there examples of people who maybe you know, aren't party members or even mm. potentially party supporters, but who work for a minister and, and build a good relationship? Yeah, absolutely. They've been really successful and they bring a, a more greater diversity of skills in. Likewise, some people have told me who are partisans have worked their way up and been managers, whether they've been chief of staff or director of communications. They've said, I've brought people from the inside who are partisan and people from outside. Mm. And there's no predicting which ones will be better with good and bad from both sources. So it's really important to be open um, to where you might find the, the, the people with the right kind of skills rather than being fixed that it just comes from one route. And indeed, diversity of, of thought and perspective and background is always better anyway. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, and Liz, final opening question. So you were a special advisor in the Scottish government at the IFG. We're always keen to kind of compare across the governments in the UK, learn from different angles. How does how things work in Edinburgh compared to what you've just heard about? In the, the skills and attributes that are needed are the same. The job is not that dissimilar, you will 
be yes, listening to what Sally was saying, you know, a key part of the job is if you, if you are a yes minister person, you will be a terrible special advisor. Mm -hmm. You must be able to challenge, you must be able to provoke your minister, you must be able to convey both for the civil service and to the civil service, you know, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea in between your ministers. And they have to have the confidence that you can talk your minister round if something's mm -hmm. not good. Um, but your minister has to have the confidence that you can talk the civil service yeah. round. Yeah. Um, I think the key difference is actually part of size and geography, mm -hmm. is that whereas in the Westminster system, special advisors are much more based on their department, their portfolio, in Scotland it's tended to operate as a one-team right. approach. Right. Um, everyone is technically a special advisor to the first minister, working with a cabinet secretary, a portfolio. So uh, it was much easier to manage as mm -hmm. a chief of staff because I had the benefit of having everyone in one room, right. mm -hmm. which I know doesn't happen at Westminster. And that, I think reduces the partisanship mm -hmm. of special advisors. It perhaps reduces the ability to become that celebrity spad, to you know, go out and make your name on your activity, to tie yourself to a particular politician, because you're there to do the government's yeah. job. Yeah. You're there to deliver what you have been, what your leaders have been elected to do, and that is your role. Yeah. Um, so I think that makes it a lot, uh, perhaps not always more harmonious, but slightly less partisan and political in doing the job. Yeah. So that's interesting. So this question of kind of loyalty to a minister versus loyalty to the government as a whole, for those of you who've worked in the Westminster government, how did you balance that? I mean, as in number 10, did you have oversight of what all the spans were doing? Or? We, loosely, we loosely did, but no, I mean, special advisors were allocated to ministers, and, in a, and it was pretty unusual to, to say no, mm -hmm. you know, in the sense the spans that a minister, a cabinet minister had were usually... In, with it, they, they came with the cabinet minister. They were chosen by the cabinet minister. They were they were cleared by number ten. Yeah. I I actually don't think there was there was hardly ever any disagreement around it. Um, so where it actually worked best, I mean, the model for me was always where you had, a, you know, a cabinet probably a cabinet minister and a minister of state and their special advisors with incredibly good relationships mm -hmm. with the special advisors and the senior civil servants in in number ten. So, you know, if I think about in some ways, the exemplar of that for me was the period when Anna Milburn was health and John Hutton was, was Minister of State and, he, and very, very strong right. spads in the Department of Health, very strong spads in number 10. They were working as one team. It yeah. was not, contra you know, in a sense, yeah. they, were, they, they were working it out together. They were delivering the detail. But so that's, that's when it really works well. Right. Right. Um, and I think the other thing was, that, was, that was typified by that and is important and it, you know, it worked well when spads had credibility. Mm -hmm. If they are, if they are ex genuinely experienced and broad and clearly capable, there's actually not a lot of controversy. Yeah. If they're not those things, that in my, in my experience was when the controversy happened. Yeah, and, and Sonia, I mean, when you were at the Treasury, did you feel like you were working for the Chancellor or for the government as a whole? Um, I mean, it's a tricky one because I worked in a period where number 10 and number 11 didn't get on, as most people uh, probably know. Um, <laughs> I'll meet you. And I, think, yes. <laughs> I think the principal challenges, both those offices are set up to do different things. So you need your principles to be aligned. I mean, if you work at the Treasury, your number one goal is to, you know, balance the books, essentially. And you know that your boss is going to be responsible for the economy overall. So uh, if there's a shortfall in spending, if there uh, is a shortfall in tax receipts, or 
whatever else if debt ends up rising, um, you're responsible for that. But that sometimes there's this attitude when you work at number 10 that you can just uh, like apply spending wherever. And I think where it works really well is where there's that balance. So I think David Cameron and George Osborne kind of did it really well in the sense that they knew what the fiscal restraints were that they wanted to set, but they had also broadly agreed what the sort of uh, spending envelope should look like. But that probably doesn't exist for most people. And I think to Sally's point, you can have the best relationship in the world with your uh, counterparts at number 10, but you can never, ever get over if you're, you know, your yeah. boss and the um, prime minister don't ever get on. And then you yeah. just end up getting caught in the middle, yeah. wasting loads of time arguing back and forth. So I think, yeah, the best thing a prime minister can do is actually appoint a ch chancellor that they trust as opposed to someone that they want to keep an eye on. <laughs> <laughs> you, you heard it here first. So... Um, Jennifer, I'm kind of expanding this a little bit. Um, that point about the, the minister's relationship with other ministers is going to affect what their advisors can do, right? So how much kind of responsibility do you think ministers should take for ensuring that their advisors can be effective and can get things done? Um, well, they have a significant role to play. They're not the only people who are involved in managing staffers. You know, that also is to go force to other senior political staffers like chiefs of staff and directors of teams. But it's really important that, that ministers, to get the best out of their staff, that they make it clear to their advisors what their priorities are, mm. what approaches they want to take, what kind of style, and also that they try and set a positive tone for the office mm -hmm. and also give some feedback every so often. Yeah. Not in a traditional business or civil service performance framework, not formulaic like that. But one of the things that um, advisors and staffers have mentioned is when they get even just a little bit of small positive feedback, from the minister that really galvanizes them and motivates them because um, that's, that's who they're working for at the end of the day. It's the politician, they want some kind of connection. But also, offices will get asked to do so many things and they cannot do everything that they're asked to do. So ministers need to say, these are my priorities, these are the things I really want you to work on at the moment. And if you know it needs to be reset because events change, you know, have a reset meeting. So it's important, if you want people to do what you want them to do, you need to tell them what that is. Yeah. And it sounds simplistic, but sometimes mm, in the, the milieu of, of, of political business, people forget to do that. Absolutely. Mm. Can I ask you, Liz, about management? So as chief of staff, you know, you said you've got, you've got this team all in one room. How did you approach running that as a team? Um, I think there's tried and tested ways of doing it, which is, you know, your Monday morning meeting, your Friday meeting, your sharing of the agenda of what's coming up. Um, we would have policy special advisors and then sort of central communications advisors who would cover yeah, the whole of the government. Um, so when you're sitting in the chief of staff position or the head of comms position, you've got oversight of yeah. what everybody's up to. Yeah. Um, and having everyone together is actually quite a useful way of, if you like, breaking some of the government silos mm -hmm. and breaking some of the ministerial silos. Because genuinely, you could figure out that the government was doing one thing on the left hand, one on the right yeah. hand, because you overheard your special yeah. advisors having a conversation. Yeah. You know, and you can actually step in and bring that together, convene the different parts of the government and work out any clashes. Um, in terms of go back to something I think Sonia said earlier, the recruitment, the bringing in special advisors, that mix of very loyal party staffers who have worked their way up with outside voices mm -hmm. is critical, mm -hmm. I think, to building a good team. Yeah. And I brought in special advisors from the outside. I turned a special advisors team that was, when I became the chief of staff, uh, I think I was the only woman to 50-50, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you need that diversity um, in the room. And as when you're managing the team, you need to listen to that diversity of views because your most junior special advisor might actually have a really good point mm -hmm. on the policy that they're working on that you risk just riding roughshod over. Right. 
right. and they might need your help to get it into with the minister, to get it in with the civil service, yeah. to get it heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I ask an open question? I mean, anyone on that point about recruitment and bringing people in, what are the things that you think people in government look for in SPADs and the skills and experience that they need? I, I mean, I, I think maybe I see it slightly differently because I suppose I... And maybe it was different in, in number 10. Because if I think of the policy areas, in our mm. big policy areas, we had a civil servant and a special yeah. advisor working together. And therefore, you were there, therefore, making sure you brought in a special advisor who would be the political link with mm -hmm. the political people yeah. within the departments, I think. Um, but they had to be good enough and they had to have specialist mm -hmm. skills. Yeah. I mean, on the whole, you know, I don't know whether this is the case now, traditionally, a cabinet minister would have a policy special advisor and a strategy yeah. special advisor and that it seemed to me they are the broad areas that you're looking for and I think it's quite hard to learn those things on the job I mean I think you've yeah. you can you there was certainly there certainly needed to be an ability to have to, to deal with quite complicated policy issues that doesn't mean to say you had to be a specialist in the field but you had to be able to analyze political um, policy issues if you were the yeah. policy lead and I think the broad comms in my time, the broad comms strategy people were the more political mm -hmm. operators, if you like. Yeah. Um, certainly, certainly working for cabinet ministers, they were the, they were the, they were the political link, really. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to have political nous. You, yeah, you, you can't do you it do. if you don't have political instinct yeah. and initiative. But you absolutely have to be willing to learn the details totally. of your policy area. Right. You know, right. and to learn from the experts that are around you and yep. the stakeholders that it is your job to engage yep. with. Yeah. You can't hold a conversation with a stakeholder. In ready. knowledge of the subject, you are useless to the minister. Yeah. 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 I think I would add to that having a really good understanding of how the civil service works. Mm. So I became a special advisor after joining the civil service at the age of 21, 22, and did five departments uh, in, the, in about five years. Um, and to me, that was critical to being able to do my job quickly because you understand um, the structure of the civil service, you understand where the bureaucracy is, how the clearance process works. Um, I mean, every single department has its own culture, so you've got to very quickly be able to learn to adapt. But I think if you don't have that fundamental skill, you will constantly come up with blocks. You know, your policies will never work. You know, your policies will never sort of go through, but you'll also never know how to use the civil service effectively. I mean, the best... Special advisors really utilise yeah. their private offices. I yeah. mean, they're a massive asset. But if you go into battle with them on day one, you're never going to get very far. And it's the same for others. Like, if you can find where those gems are, you know, those super yeah. clever civil servants who might be really junior, then, you know, I think you're, you're flying your role. But I think a critical understanding to the structures of the civil service, not just the department that you're in, mm. but the departments that you liaise mm. with quite often is really important. Mm. And yeah, I mean, that said, I think it all goes down to that agility and ability to learn because mm. there are all sorts of things that they will have to learn when they're in post. Yeah. Um, yeah. Their role isn't so much to know everything as to learn and adapt and respond to and interpret and advise on everything. So it is, it's kind of generalist and specialist yeah. at the yeah. same time. Mm. Um, on the policy, you know, particularly policy spads and policy advisors, some people think they need to have really high-level policy expertise, but actually increasingly people say no because... They have that in the civil service anyway, or you can get it outside through um, lobbyists or experts bringing them in. But the job of a political advisor on policy is to add that political lens. What does this mean politically? How does it tie in with our election promises that we promised? Because you are all there supposed to be delivering for the people what you promised in the election, whether you like those promises or not. That is democracy, and it's how it works. 
Um, so with that, but that agility and adaptiveness and ability to learn is important. Because yes. unfortunately, there isn't an MBA in being a political. <laughs> no. There is, there is there are a few programs in the US and Canada, but not not many. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions for me, and then I will open it up to the audience. But um, on Sonny's point, you know, the relationship with the civil service, right? That allows special advisors to get things done. There's the kind of shouty Malcolm Tucker stereotype <laughs> of a, a spad who just annoys everyone and rubs everyone up the wrong way. Open question again, without naming names, obviously. Does that, is that a real person? Did that exist? And how do you avoid becoming that person? I mean, I should answer that first, because I think, that was, <laughs> cause I think that, was, that was supposedly in my period. But I, it is so far away from, from the Alistair I worked with. I mean, it just, I mean, look, there's bits of it at the edges. Of course, there is in, certain, in terms of frustration. But um, I mean, I still, I mean, uh, the team that Alistair led was a mixture of civil servants and special advisors. And, they ended up really good friends um, and worked extremely well together. And I think it's back to it's back to your point about the sort of high drama of it of yeah. it all. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think it must be much much harder now with social media and all. I mean, you know, we didn't really have to deal with that, so I think it is it must be much harder. But yeah. um, a special advisor like that would not, in the end, last in no. my view. A special advisor like that would be out the door on disciplinary yeah. in about yeah. a week. But yeah. they would now. They would now. Yeah. But actually, they wouldn't deliver. Because they wouldn't have the relationships. Yeah. I mean, nobody talks no. to them. You deliver by the soft skill. You deliver yeah. by engagement, you know, a catch more flies with honey type approach. Mm -hmm. you, you don't deliver by walking around the corridor, yeah. shouting yeah, like, at people. Yeah. Um, I, when people would come in, you kind of have to disabuse them of the notion you're not joining either the thick of it or the yeah. west wing. <laughs> this is a hard <laughs> job. <laughs> and you will be the, the bridge and the buffer for an awful lot. You'll have to absorb a lot of stress and you don't have anywhere to put it. You can't go and shout at people and let it out. You have to deal with it. You have to manage it. I have to it. say, we once had Leo from West Wing visited when I was there. We were so <laughs> excited. I can remember everything stopped. And, and, um, and I remember Tony kind of saying, I've got to, he was supposed to be having a meeting. We're all saying, but Leo is coming. Yeah. He's the real <laughs> chief of staff. <laughs> and so uh, we were quite in awe of West Wing. <laughs> Any other thoughts on relationships? I was say, picking up on it being a very hard job. I mean, these are, what, 60-hour weeks, sometimes yeah. 80 hours in a dangerous situation. It shouldn't yeah. be that high. But they are extremely high level, very pressured yeah. jobs. They are not easy. Um, there is also way more to be done than can be done. Mm -hmm. So anything that the, the public service or civil service can and should do, you need to let them yeah. do that. So you've got time to focus on the political yeah. issues, which only you, you can yeah. do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, mm. So that's really important, just to be able to constrain what are always yeah. going to be very high workloads mm. anyway. But also, as you said, to be more effective, to get things done. Because yeah. your job is to help the politicians yeah, yeah. deliver. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would agree. I'd say my experience is I've definitely met those who've been in inspired by the range of characters from the thick <laughs> of it. Um, but um, you probably do need a high degree of resilience as well to the point about 60 hours a week, yeah. 60 hour weeks. But also, a lot of special advisors now move into... Uh, cabinet roles, they move into ministerial roles, so breaking down relationships at all ends just isn't effective, because yeah. mm. uh, they will come back to bite you at some mm. point one day and actually a lot of really good special advisors have become great ministers and I think command the respect of their offices, if you look at Richard Holden or Retrat just in recent times so mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, so one question for me and then I will open it up um, in the UK government, officially, there is supposed to be a limit on special advisors, two per minister. That's what the ministerial code says, unless the prime minister allows more. In recent years, successive prime ministers have allowed many more. I think some ministers have had six or even eight special advisors. You were saying in the Scottish government, there's around 15, I think, yeah, for the whole I think government. So, including some from uh, the Greens with a supporting by. I think I have cabinet secretaries in Scotland, some of them would absolutely love to have a dedicated special advisor to yeah. themselves. 
Um, the perception is that there's, you know, hundreds of special advisors running around corridors in government. It's just not like that. Mm. Um, I would have some portfolio policy special advisors who would cover more than one policy area, mm. you know, um, and communications special advisors who would cover the entire government. Yeah. Um, so, you know, no one's going to have great sympathy for a special advisor, but the numbers, I think, is a bit of a, you know, there's always a story when you hire one, there's always a story when the pay bill comes out, and that, I think, stops both ministers and the civil service from having the advice that is actually needed. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I don't know what the numbers are now. I, don't, I mean, my view is more, more if they're good, helps. Um, I think one of the ways that people have found their way around is to have specialist advisors mm. or something like this, so it, which is bringing in some, some expertise. So, I mean, that's kind of slightly added to the numbers. I mean, my experience was that in departments, more specialist advisors would have been helpful because right. my impression was that very often the two, cab the, the two spads would work really for the cabinet minister. Right. And quite often you'd meet a junior minister with quite significant yeah. policy areas and challenges, a difficult issue, and they were kind of on Receiving their own. No support. They were on yeah. their own. And so, you know, I, I think, Ron, I would... I would say if they're good, more, more, more would be helpful. I mean, when you look at the numbers of civil servants, it's tiny. And yeah. when you think they're trying to... You've got a team working with a junior minister who's got no political mm -hmm. input, yeah. really. Um, so I think, I think you know, it's about quality. Yeah. I'd say I don't think the current model works in having a split between just policy and communications because you have so many other priorities mm. now, whether it's, you know, looking at how to use social media, yeah. whether it's, you know, engaging business, which we now know is actually very critical post the sort of trustonomics budget, um, learning how to engage with parliament, how yeah. to, you know, yeah. successfully use your MPs, ensuring that unity. So I think having just two in those roles doesn't allow them to achieve very much, especially if yeah. they're burden with a huge amount of work, um, especially now that the size of the, you know, the government is much bigger and there's a lot more sort of scrutiny on achieving more and quicker and faster with less resources. I think the treasury model is quite a good one. So there's usually about five or six special advisors. One takes on communications. Normally you get two who do policy, including a chief of staff, which is largely a negotiation position with number 10. Um, you get one who looks at parliamentary engagement, one who looks at business, and then you might get someone who is kind of a digital communications specialist or an ops specialist or whatever else. And I think that actually allows you to operate as a functioning team without feeling like you're just constantly treading water. Yeah, yeah. and don't forget your reflections. I mean, the UK, I think, is in, in other, compared to other Westminster systems, we have kind of fewer special advisors, but perhaps more junior ministers than, for example, Australia or New um, Zealand. I haven't worked out the numbers because Australia is less and then New Zealand is less, but they're all going down in size in terms yeah. of country and population, so I'm not sure. But I mean, what, what advisors I've interviewed have advised is that new governments coming in should actually take the political hit why they're popular yeah. and increase staffing numbers so that the governments can deliver to the voters yeah. who've mm. elected them into power. Because mm -hmm. that's what it's about. It's not about yeah. politicians wielding power through mm. special advisors. Mm. It's about actually getting thing, things done. Um, but others have said just adding numbers doesn't work. So it goes to your point about they need to be good. Yeah. So the other thing they need to do is put effort and resources and time and thinking into managing those advisors mm. so they can perform effectively as well as ethically. There's been a lot of emphasis on the ethics yeah. side, but it's also about effectiveness. Yeah. So that's where they need good orientation, training, yeah. and support, and the people managing them also need to be, get some kind of bespoke training in how to manage people. I think there's one part, just going back to what Sonia said, that model that using Treasury, one of the things you are supposed to be able to do as a special advisor is to proactively work with your civil service to push forward policy mm. on the minister's behalf that the government has been elected to deliver. With social media, 24-hour news, constant bombardment, special advisors increasingly slip into a very reactive mm -hmm. space because yeah. it is a menacing, what's the answer to this? Deal with this, yeah. get the line out on this. Yeah. And yeah. that 
prevents you doing the proactive things. So yeah. I think that if there is additional capacity, yeah. making sure it is apportioned yeah. <laughs> so that you can maintain yeah. the agenda you is crucial. Yeah. 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 And I think also deliver a long-term agenda. Yeah, there are I think some that's the issues yeah, that yeah. will take a long time yeah. to come yeah. to fruition, but you just cannot dedicate any resources yeah. time to them because you're constantly dealing with what's in front of you, which is great, but then you realise actually the government doesn't hit most of its targets purely because of a lack of resources, mm -hmm. which can be really frustrating when they're either things you know related to net zero yeah. or health or otherwise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Uh, let's have yeah. some questions. So we have a roving mic. We'll take them in groups of three in the room first, and then I will go online. So this gentleman here at the front was very quick. Uh, and then we'll have plenty of rounds. You're very sweet, Tim. Thank you very much. My name's Andrew, Andrew Edwards. I teach advanced public speaking. I wanted to look at the end of this process. Now, we all can't end up principal of an Oxbridge college when we finish being a special advisor, right? No. Right? Yes, Sally, I'm not, I'm not doubting that. But I, but I am concerned that, for example, say you're a prime minister who then resigns and then you resign as an MP. What happens to the people who are going to be in your office and everything like that? Some of them are being given a peerage, but again, you can't give everyone a peerage. So I really am concerned, as Jennifer was mentioning, if you're working 80 hours a week as a 21 year old and everything like that, then all of a sudden your principle has gone. <laughs> what on earth has happened? Are you looked after in any way, shape or form? Thanks, Tim. Brilliant. Great question. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen at the back and then here in the glasses and we will go around again. Hi there, Timothy Stafford, long-time parliamentary staffer. I now work for the Australian High Commission doing Australia's government affairs. Um, I just want to come back to the question of centralisation and whether you feel, I guess this is more of a question for Sonia, that in the last 13 years there's been a 10 trend and tendency of things being more one out of Downing Street because it very much felt during the Cameron era that it was individual cabinet ministers would choose who they wanted, they reported directly to them and then you got to sort of the Dominic Cummings era and I don't want to necessarily go back into that too much but where it felt like number 10 was exercising a veto at reshuffle times, it was saying yes you can stay but you've got to lose the, the spads that we don't like, everybody has to come to a weekly meeting, these are the talking points, you've got to do what I'm going to tell you etc and it was all being one out of Downing Street. Was that a a very specific one-off bespoke model, or is that the trend of what we should expect in future governments? Thank you, Martin Lejeune. I'm a former cabinet office civil servant and ministerial private secretary. So a quick answer to your question. Um, are SPADs focused on the government or the ministers? They're ministers. That's where the job is, simple. And a quicker, even quicker question is, um, should we not have cabinets of 20 or 30 political specialists. As a formal civil servant, I know the weight of the machine is really hard to drag it back to deliver what ministers want. You want more than just crisis management. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Um, okay, so on people who leave office and is their support, Liz, you volunteered, but. <laughs> <laughs> I volunteered as the one with the most recent experience. Yeah. Um, I and some colleagues are about two months out of government with the change of first minister mm. in Scotland. Uh, and one of my colleagues who was uh, in communications, I remember him saying during the leadership contest, he was sat doing the weekly briefing after FMQs and one of the journalists said, what happens to you? And his answer was, well, I'm redundant on Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you live with your minister, you die with your minister, yeah. you go in and out with them. Now, it's slightly different in Scotland where, and I think this could work in Westminster, it does, where you're sort of, you're managed by the first minister, so a reshuffle doesn't necessarily mean a special advisor loses their post. You might move, hmm. you might acquire a different cabinet secretary. Um, but a first ministerial resignation, a prime ministerial resignation, every special advisor loses their job. Um, 
there is some redundancy arrangements, but it's one of the reasons I think you see this growing cult of celebrity spads who, you know, uh, have one eye on the exit door. What comes next while you're doing the job? What can I claim the credit for? What am I responsible for? What will I get a job for afterwards? Who do I engage with as a stakeholder who's going to hire me afterwards? And I think there's a little bit of danger in that. But yeah, you, you're straight out. Um, it's quite a brutal mm. process, to be honest. I mean, I was getting ready to go anyway, but it, yeah. it does come at you pretty hard. Mm. I don't know if you have anything to add on that, or do you want to move on to... No, no, I think, I think that's a very... Uh, I think that's a, a really good way to summarise it. The next day, you kind of just sat there watching the headlines, like, yeah. what do I do now? Mm. Yeah, I have no life. You literally wake <laughs> up... at all of my yeah. friends, because I never went to their weddings or anything that they organised. Um, no, I think um, there's no sort of formal support, but there is informal support, which is the network of special advisors who've gone before you. And actually, I think that was massively helpful in understanding what the career options are for you moving forward. I mean, they're often pretty limited, so most people end up in consultancy. They might go work in-house. I think there's actually... Um, unusual trends of people doing sort of different things so you know people becoming successful podcasters now or um you know thinking about an entirely different sort of career or moving abroad or whatever else but uh i guess because no one manages you and you're not really the priority of anyone you're kind of just left to it so you really have to you almost have to become a bit of a hustler you have to find your own path and um, find out where the gaps are in the market for you. But it, it can be tough, especially when there's a change of government. Mm. So I think if you go from Conservative to Labour or Labour to Conservative, you suddenly realise, like, nobody wants to talk to you. None of your skills matter. Your network becomes sort of irrelevant in the sense yeah. that people just want to know who the next version of you is. So it can be tough. I mean, my experience was probably easier because I left in 2005. And so that was two years before... Yeah. Tony Blair left number 10, and that was my choice. So in a sense, yeah. I, I actively took the decision to go. That said, I did walk out the door not knowing at all what I was going to yeah. do, because when, even if you know you're going, you don't have time yeah. to think about it. And yeah. so I, I, you know, I always say to people, drink coffee with people for three months. Yes. Just don't say <laughs> yes to anything. Drink coffee, think, yeah. what do I actually now really want to do? Because I can't replicate what that was. Yeah. So what shall I do that really yeah. I, I, I enjoy and I get something out of? And... Um, and you've got, I mean, I think you're right about the network because I think the only people yeah. who really get it are yeah. people who've gone through it. Mm. And I think, mm. I suspect we all get lots of calls from people who just say, what the heck do I do? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I think we have to spend time with each other on that basis, yeah. actually, because I think it's, it's quite brutal. it can be quite brutal. Yeah, brutal is the word that mm. people who yeah. I interviewed um, use the most. Mm. You know, half an hour notice and they're out. Yeah, and it, really it, it, it's not just a change of election, which at least then is democracy in operation. Sometimes it's a change of leader within a party. Yes. And people who are helping yeah. suddenly don't want yeah. you, you, you there. Yeah. And the other thing, if you look at it... Or a cabinet oh, minister, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think the hardest is a reshuffle I where yeah. everyone else is still there. Yes. You, you, I think that's very them, hard. But you yeah. might not be. Yeah. Yeah, somebody in Canada referred to it as the Hunger Games after a reshuffle where everybody's <laughs> yeah. trying to find a new, a new job, mm. which is pretty nasty. But the other scary thing is, is this is a loss of skills which have yeah. been developed in roles paid for by the taxpayer and they just go out the door and they're not necessarily going to be put to the best mm. use. So again, it's bad for the individuals, but it's also bad yeah, for yeah. that the ecosystem yeah. of, yeah. of I think professional behaviour. Where we have kept people at reshuffles, kept the special advisors team, even if the cabinet changes, you're actually keeping some of the institutional knowledge and the mm -hmm. new cabinet secretary can benefit from a special advisor who may have been working for someone else yesterday, but who you know, knows the history of the mm. issues that they're dealing with, knows what's going on, knows how we got here, knows in and out, knows which civil servants you're going to get good advice and briefing from. You know, there's a good guidance there. Mm. So there's merit in keeping people. Yeah. The second question on centralisation uh, in number 10, how do you think that has changed over the last few years? 
Um, well, I think we've increasingly moved towards a model where not just strategy and accountability is run out of time, but actually a lot of delivery. And I think as a result, um, less is delivered. And that becomes a big problem ahead of a general election where suddenly there's a big focus on um, sort of implementation of, of policies and there's a rush to get things out the door. And uh, I worked under every single prime minister in different roles. And I'd say the best model was probably the Cameron Osborne one where uh, they had sort of a broad overview of the policies that they wanted to deliver. And they used cabinet and political cabinet as a, as a way of maintaining accountability. But ultimately, um, delivery was done by the ministers in charge. And a lot of those ministers were people that they had cultivated relationships with over a long period of time. So there was a really central basis of trust, which I don't always think exists in kind of uh, future cabinets. So I think that, that model is a lot better because, I mean, Sally will know this, but number 10 is very, very small. Even if you've got the best special advisor and the best mm. uh, like policy civil servant, they can only achieve so much. So I think not utilizing the skills that exist within the departments is sort of a real shame. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think that we will permanently return to that model just because I think we're realizing now that there are a lot of policies that haven't been delivered, especially when you match them to sort of manifestos on, on both sides here. Okay, and then the third question from Martin. So on uh, cabinets of 20 to 30 political advisors, um, what do people think? Would that be a good thing? I mean, generally, we tend to have, yeah, a few political appointees and a big civil service support team in the UK, but it's different in other countries. I mean, I suppose, it, I suppose my experience of number 10 was obviously that it was a reasonable number. It was still not nearly as many as the civil service, but it did probably feel more like a, not exactly an equal relationship, but it, the numbers weren't as, weren't, as, weren't as extremely difficult. And I think that therefore did, from my experience, meant that, you, that it was more of a team sport, if you like. Um, that said, there was still... With the support, actually, of the civil service in number 10, obviously, a level of frustration in my day led to the delivery unit, the strategy unit, and that was an attempt to say we want to go beyond the day-to-day. -day. We want to, you know, everyone to implement on our manifesto, but B, we want to do the, the sort of slight blue-sky thinking and that somehow the civil service wasn't quite delivering. Neither were the day-to-day -day special advisors. Um, so I suspect every government is always restive about how can we make this work better. Any other... No, I mean, we went through a similar thing, so a policy mm. and delivery unit, and I myself moved out of being chief of staff to do long-term right. policy thinking, mm -hmm. right. I feel like, um, for the last year and a half. I'm not sure about a sort of cabinet of 20 yeah. to 30, but I think uh, the, the relationship that I've always sought with civil service and the relationship that I think I've always seen special advisors in the Scottish government aim to have with civil service is a consensus one, is a collaboration one. There's challenge, there's rightly challenge between the political viewpoint and the civil service viewpoint, but that is done by working together. Yeah. Um, it's not a us yeah. versus them yeah. approach, it's a collaborative yeah. approach, and that's what gets us better results. And that's why I think you said they work for ministers. I actually don't think they do. They work for the government. Yeah. Great. I'm going to go to some questions from online. So the top rated one, as advisors to senior members of the government, to what extent do you bear responsibility for the consequences of actions that you advise on? Big <laughs> accountability, responsibility question. What, what do people think? But don't advisors advise, not decide? Yeah. 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 I mean, the code specifically says we can't make any decisions and we can't spend any money. Um, <laughs> that's not to say we don't, I think, accept responsibility for our advice. Mm. I think that's exactly it. You are responsible for the advice you give, but if you work for somebody who finds decision-making difficult or struggles with decisions or decisions ultimately don't deliver what yeah. the aim is that person holds responsibility yeah. my experience normally do bad i mean yeah. recognize they hold the responsibility yeah. having listened to the advice 
that you've given and, and hopefully yeah. listen to a range of advice and then ultimately yeah. they, they decide. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the job. Your voice should be one of a number, yeah. but it is advice and it is the minister in the position that processes that advice and decides what they do. And then ultimately is held accountable in yeah. Parliament yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and beyond and politics. Yeah. I think you have to accept that ministers get advice from multiple yeah. sources. Yeah. So a special advisor isn't the only person mm. that they'll be dealing with. It could be MPs, it could be ex like people who work in a, a, a consultancy or work somewhere else. So yeah, it's a bit hard to pinpoint like a specific yeah. decision to them. And yeah. not, not to do downspads, but we're sometimes, particularly in the media, sort of allocated a power that we don't actually mm. have. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay, question two again. Uh, this, sorry, I should have said the first one was from Anonymous, and this one is from Anonymous. Um, <laughs> there has been a big effort in recent years to improve diversity within the civil service. Has there been any comparable change with SPADs, or is the stereotype that most have very similar background, ages, and mindsets correct? Um, well, I, I don't know about SPADs, but I know in Canada, for example, that, and Australia, they have made a concerted effort to improve the diversity. Right of people and, you know, really gone and out and proactively to recruit, to bring people into the interview process. And they said then things get better there, but also to offer more support for diversity, diversity background and thought. Mm -hmm. In UK SPADs, there wasn't any mention of that in my interviews, but they were just with staff with Boris Johnson, so maybe that's, that was a particular case. What do you think? Has there been any effort? I mean, I think we, we, had, we did have... We, we did have quite different backgrounds, actually, um, in, in the number 10 I was part of. I think across government, maybe less so, but I think, that is, I think when you've been in opposition for a long yeah. time, in a sense, you probably have got quite a diverse group mm -hmm. of people because they've been with ministers often for quite a long, long time. Yeah. Um, I can't say that there was a conscious... I think there was a conscious effort to have different thoughts, different, yeah. different yeah. backgrounds in terms of thinking. Yeah. Um, I suspect now, but I would guess there's more effort made in a more obvious way to, to, about yeah. diversity. But I think, I think diverse thought in my day was certainly welcomed because what's the point otherwise, really? Yeah. yeah. But there is a, a an infrastructure problem here, or rather a lack of infrastructure, yeah, which is. causes a problem mm -hmm. in that because the jobs are insecure, because you can be kicked yeah. out of half. Yeah, that's right. And I was noticed because the pay is not really comparable to the, <coughs> the, you know, the private sector or the civil service even, or the conditions or the pension or the safeguards or mental health support or anything, the whole range of conditions which are really bad. It means that, I mean, we were saying earlier um, with Pamela Dow from the Civic Future, the problem is that then you end up with spads tend to be either very well off and able to take the cut if they're experienced or they're young and starting off their career so it, they're not having to finance a mortgage just yet yeah. or they don't have family responsibilities. Yeah. So that in itself creates problems, and this is probably true all over the world actually, creates problems for getting a more diverse staff. And the hours are horrendous, they're, they're not good times, there's been... You know, and it's getting better. Perhaps more awareness of it, but they, the hours are not conducive to people who have young families and things. But don't you then just think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to be too negative, actually, because I mean, in a sense, it is the most amazing job. If yeah, you yeah, if you are part of a government where you think I really do want to be part of helping this deliver, yeah. and I believe in what we're trying to do, there's not many jobs yeah. better. No, so, no, they, and the, you know, the people I, I interviewed really yeah. appreciate the opportunity to serve yeah um the opportunity to make a difference that it's incredibly exciting it's really valuable it's just that you know there are a number who then had children and then i can't do this anymore yeah. so just when they're getting experienced yeah. and could be really good managers and all the rest of it they have to leave because of their family yeah i mean i changed the diversity of special advisors to bring in more women i don't think there was sufficiently diverse backgrounds across the board there is a diversity of thought i think and not a sort of I don't know if the traditional spad down here might be thought to be a sort of privately educated, mm -hmm. well off. You know, I don't think that's, that's certainly not a correct assumption 
of the group of special advisors in Scotland. Um, but it is hard when those hours hit family life and family responsibilities and in trying to recruit women and that's often a conversation I found myself having is how can we manage this how can we help you how can we make this flexible and um, you know and it, yeah it is difficult it's not yeah. always appeal the lifestyle is not appealing what you can do your ability to influence change has to be something that is you know takes over the yeah. negatives for your lifestyle. There is just one thing I'd add to that, and I think diversity of thought and background are great, but you really do need someone to advocate for you. Uh, I won't name who, who it is, but I think when I became a special advisor, I was really fortunate that there was someone who was sort of my advocate with senior yeah. people and made sure that I was heard. And if you don't have that, it feels almost mm. impossible to, yeah. to do the role. Because you can be there and you can be pushing your ideas forward, but if, if you don't have that person who... He says, actually, I want listen to hear to from, yeah, <laughs> yeah, listen to that person, or listen to this person, they come yeah. from this background, we need to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay, let's have another round of questions from the room. Um, uh, two on the front row here, uh, ladies and gentlemen, next to each other. Hi, thanks, Tim. Uh, John McDonough from RecRaw Consulting, which is an employability and recruitment solutions business. It's fascinating listening to this. So if we use a real-life conundrum now, we've got a massive problem with employability and skills. Very complex. I think it's unrealistic for any special advisor to have more than a wafer-thin understanding of this. And let's say, hypothetically, to your point, you've got a private office that aren't necessarily exactly where they should be and they've been counting things um, away from ministers, etc. How do you open the too difficult box? How do you get to open the cans of worms. You mean difficult policy issues, or...? <clears throat> no, I mean... More than that. I mean, people haven't been... Haven't lived it. Well, not just that, they're not actually doing what they see on the tin. Yeah. OK. Do you want to pass the mic along? Thank you. <clears throat> yes, I mean, we're talking about diversity, but it concerns me... This is a fairly limited time frame for this job. A lot of people put their work, first some their whole career, some for a period. So I can't see actually a problem if people think, oh, well, I don't want late hours because I might want to do something else. Then surely if they're of the caliber to do this job, they can think, well, I'll do this now, then I will do that later. And I mean, certainly it makes a case for experienced people coming in later. So you, you have a diverse age group. But I don't think there should be too much kowtowing, oh, well, somebody might want to leave at five o'clock because. So I'd like the reaction. <laughs> Josh Arnold Forster and I was a SPAD under the last Labour government um, and I spent a lot of time with junior ministers just because they needed help and so I do I have a great deal of sympathy about expanding the number of special advisors available in the department but but I would also argue based based on recent experience and actually previous experience, that special advisors' behaviour and how they operate and what they are allowed to do and what they are not allowed to do needs to be examined again and, I would argue, codified. I don't think it's good enough just to allow special advisors to go, well, well, I thought that was my remit or I didn't do that but I knew my boss wanted me to do that, etc., etc. I think there is a role for codification for civil servants um, and that who gets to hold them to account isn't necessarily the civil servant, even though we are, we're all temporary civil servants, but, but maybe you do need a committee of the House to look at, just as the Privileges Committee can look at MPs, maybe you need a similar structure to hold um, special advisors to account. Great, thank you. Okay, some very meaty ones there. Um, Sally, do you want to... 
pick, pick any of those. Okay. Pick any of those. Well, I'll go for that last one, actually. I mean, I, I don't agree with you, and in fact. Um, I mean, I think, I think accountability for, for SPADs is... The person who's got to hold them accountable is the minister for whom they're working. They're not part of the civil service. We may, you know, you may be... I mean, my, my, my day, actually, I was partly paid still by the Labour Party as well as the civil service. But um, uh, I, I think it's... And, I, and they don't work for the House. I mean, they don't work for the House. They work for the government, and that is different. Um, so... You know, Prime Minister has got to hold his or her ministers accountable, and they have got to hold, through their chief of staff, or they've got to hold the SPADs accountable. And that's, that's, that's the line for me. So I'm in favour of accountability, but if somebody misbehaves, they should go. I mean, you know, actually, people have to be held accountable. They can't just carry on. Well, the code is the ministerial code. The Prime Minister should hold the ministers accountable, and then if SPADs misbehave, the person to answer is the minister. There is a, I mean, there is a special advisor's code, and it does set out your behaviour, but how it's applied is really hit and miss, and whether you even see that code is also hit and miss. Sometimes you're not given that contract. Sometimes you see it when you leave and you go through an employment tribunal. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I would use that as a starting point, so how you use and apply that, that, that document it is actually pretty comprehensive. It sets out quite clearly. Well, I mean, I think so, if you read the full thing. Um, it sets out what you can and can't do. I think the challenge is when it conflicts either with your minister or it conflicts with number 10. I think that's the grey area that has to be addressed, and it's probably quite difficult to address that with the House. But, I mean, as, as a special advisor, you know, what, what do you do if you've got two people telling you to do two different things? And are you held accountable to one or the other or yeah. both? Or? Very difficult. Uh, okay, the, the first two questions. So, how do you open the more the most the too difficult box, uh, and how can you get more experienced people in, or allow you know less experienced people to have a bit of experience as bad, and then bring others in later in their career? I think Any the thoughts? Point on bringing people in later in their careers. I've done it. It's incredibly helpful. You bring people in. You know, I would have a bad team that would range from somewhere in their twenties to late fifties. You know, so people have. We'll probably breach 60 at some point. So people have a range of experience when they come into the job. Some come as young staffers, some come having had careers elsewhere. Um, and they all have something to contribute. Um, the leaving at 5 o'clock, I think any special advisor that worked for me would be shocked if they thought yes. I'd ever let them leave at 5 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you do have to take account of the fact that people have personal lives and you will lose their talent. You will lose their skills and you will lose their knowledge if you're not able to support them to have a personal life in some way, shape or form, even if it's just small, even if it's only on a Saturday, you know, it means something to them and it keeps them in the job. Yeah. Also, it makes them a better advisor because Completely. they're connected with people outside the, yeah, yeah. the Westminster or yeah. Holly Road um, bubble, right? So that's yeah. really important to make Bringing them in what you get from outside, not just from stakeholders, but from your wider circle and a mix of circles coming in from different people is, yeah. you know, really yeah. helps. Yeah, you tied them to the office and they're just going to talk yeah. about that office and what everybody's thinking there or, yeah. you know, in the latest tweet or whatever. That's not actually yeah. reality. And it's the reality that government is supposed to be addressing. And I, I would just say, I don't think it's about tightness of hours particularly. I mean, I, I agree with you that, as I said, I, thought, I think it's an amazing job. I mean, period I was involved, a lot of us had young children, and we, but we were in number 10. So we managed it. Mm. And I think it's about deciding what are the things that, that, are, that are, have really matter. So... You know, if you've got, if school holidays might matter, whatever yeah. it is, really be clear what matters and try and hold to that. But then recognise beyond that, it's a period that you're, you're working flat out because, mm -hmm. because that's how you are. But that is not very different. I mean, I also do always remind people that that is the case in, in quite sector, a lot of other, well, public sector doctors, jobs. whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people living those lives. So um, 
we, we, yeah. People have got to recognise that, that there are, yeah, there's give and take, but there are also, you've got, also got to give support to people when they really need it. So there are points at which there's got to be flexibility, I think. Okay, we have five minutes left. So the gentleman here in the striped top had yeah. a question, and then I'm sorry, that'll be the last one. Um, I will ask everyone. Should we do the two difficult ones? Oh, yeah, the two difficult. I mean, yeah. if you have. Well, I mean, all I was going to say was I think one of the things that, that in terms of the two difficult box, that's really important is listening to MPs because they bring some real experience. Um, and, and also making sure that somehow, whether it's through the role of SPADs or civil servants or preferably both, you are constantly trying to engage as a government and bring people into government, go out as well, to, to meet with people who are, you know, at the chalk face, at the coal face, doing the, doing the skills work with the unemployed, whatever it is. Um, because in the end, any, of, any meeting you have with a, with a group of people, there's always a nugget that, that you think that actually explains it. So think, what are the list of questions I just am not, I'm finding really difficult to solve? And make sure that you embed yourself with enough people to try and go through those questions with a range of people and then, then, then bring that to the table to try and do the policy work. Okay, one last question. Hi, my name's Julisse. Um, <clears throat> how do, I mean, hearing you guys talk today, it seems that there's a pretty uh, negative, uh, for lack of a better word, negative uh, work environment within government and kind of spats. I mean, you talked about the long hours. Uh, you talked about the kind of lack of job security. Uh, you talked about, you know, the relationship between ministers and spats, which for me seems a bit of a asymmetrical power uh, dynamic there. Um, and then beyond that, you hear kind of wider in wider politics about um, the on the extreme side, kind of sexual misconduct and that and those issues. Um, do you think that there's a negative work environment? Do you think enough is being done to challenge that and if not, or even if so, um, what more can we do? Or what more should governments and, and people involved Very do? Quick answers, and then I will ask um, wrap up. Yes, it is a negative environment mostly. There are some wonderful practices, but they're ad hoc. And, but we need to do a lot more to make those good practices spread across so that everybody has a good experiences and political offices perform better and government serves the, the people more effectively. Um, I would say it's balanced. I think there are incredible opportunities, whether to travel, whether to you know, influence policy making, especially if it's not a background that you come from. Um, I'd say that the bad bits of politics are just heightened yeah. because of the <laughs> arena that we're in, which is you know, obvious. But I don't think you can forget that yeah. it is such an incredibly privileged role and you'll never do a role like it where you are changing exactly. things for potentially hundreds of millions of people. Exactly. I, I think that is the overriding thought for anyone who's either walks, you know, through that door into number 10 or any other sort of mm -hmm. government department. So I would say it's not wholly no. negative. I completely agree with that. Yeah. I think to add. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it is an honour and a privilege to do the job. You take the hard bits, but it is an absolute honour to be there. And when you're having a bad day, you think of the thing that's, that's happened right. in society yeah. that's happened because you did something, yeah. because of a bit of advice that you give, yeah. and that gets you through. Yeah. Brilliant. It's always nice to end on an optimistic point. So I have one final question, which is if you had to give one piece of advice to someone who wanted to be a special advisor or someone entering, someone going through that door for the first time, what would that be? Um, and while I'll give you 30 seconds to think about it while I pitch our next event. So if you're interested in relationships in government and the nitty gritty of who said what to whom, we are talking about WhatsApp in Westminster on Thursday. So <laughs> please do come back, lunchtime. Uh, it'll be me again and uh, some, another great panel. So uh, all the information is on our website. Um, what do people think? What, one tip. Okay, um, be ready to learn from your peers and ask lots of questions because you won't walk in the door knowing everything. Yeah. So you need to go to the more experienced other advisors and watch them, learn them, ask questions. And that way you're, then you're going to be able to actually learn how to do the job on yeah. the job. Brilliant.
Mine is very similar. I was going to say find a good advocate, find a good mentor, someone who you really trust, who you've got that relationship with, because you, you, you need to uh, be able to rely on people. You can't, live, you can't live in this environment with a great deal of insecurity. So. I think mine is going with the right motives. So in a sense, it's back to the point of why you're going in to do it. And if that's not the reason you're going to, yeah. you, you want to do the job, then don't go in here. Great. I think very similar. It's know why you're doing it mm -hmm. and know that it's not about you. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, so that is time. Um, the video and sound recording will be available on our website shortly. Uh, always welcome to watch back. As I say, plenty more events. Please do keep in touch. And um, if I can just wrap up by asking you to thank the panel.